Hey there, listener. If you like what you hear on World Changing Women, you should join us at the Conscious Company Leaders Forum, where we bring together tons of stories like this live, in person, outside of Santa Cruz, California at 1440 Multiversity. Go to ConsciousCompanyLeadersForum.com for more information. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. Sometimes in the early days, people would just look at me like, you don't have a clue what you're doing, do you? And of course, they were absolutely right. <laughs> I didn't. But in, in a weird way, that benefited me because it made us look at, and feel and seem so rare and so authentic and, and transparent and different from, from the very beginning. Rum is flowing from the mountains of Colorado. Yes, you heard that right. Crested Butte, Colorado where spirits are crafted from pure spring water and sugar cane from family farms, where ingredients are distilled in a mountaintop facility that's 100% wind-powered. Over a decade ago, Karen Hoskin followed a dream and founded Montagna Distillers, a certified B Corp making award-winning rums, and at the time, she was one of the few female distillers in the entire country. She's now setting out to prove that rum is so much more than a pina colada mixer, and she's using her distillery to drive positive change for people and the environment. Back in the late 80s, Karen worked as a bartender and was introduced to a variety of drinks. I really early had an appreciation myself and was known among my friends for making cocktails. Um, but I quickly learned that I didn't share the chemistry with many types of spirits. They just bothered me the next day or gave me a headache. It turned out I was undiagnosed celiac at that time. And so uh, the first time that I tasted a good rum was in 1988. And it began a 30-year love affair with the spirit in which I have traveled and experimented and, and bought beautiful bottles from all over the world. I don't drink very much, but when I do, I'm extremely picky about choosing high quality, well-made spirits. And I always gravitate toward rum. And I've learned a lot about beautiful rums from around the world. So it's, it's one thing to love a product or a service and, you know, want to drink it or eat it. It's another thing to start a distillery. Um, so in 2008, you have this moment where you decide that you're going to pursue this. What did that look like? I had been a brand builder for about 12 years at that point for other people. So I had a company of my own. I would build websites and logos and advertising campaigns and trade show booths and uh, everything that they needed to promote their company or their brand or their hotel or restaurant. And I had been doing that for such a long time and it was very busy and I was pulling all-nighters. Uh, and at the end of every project, I would literally hand it over to a client and say, 
here you go. Uh, I hope everything goes well. And I woke up one morning about 12 years in and I said to my husband on vacation, I said, you know, I really want to keep something at the end of the day. I want to have something that I create and fledge that is my own. Uh, I feel like I give everything away all the time and it's starting to take a toll on me. And he said, well, what do you want to make of your own? And that was again, the moment where I said, I want to make rum. And from there, it was a really quick process from spawning the idea to actually opening the doors of a distillery. It was really less than six months. Because uh, I'm just sort of that person. Once I get an idea in my head, if I can visualize it, I'm, I'm pretty tenacious in making it happen. <laughs> Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about those six months there and like what were some of the actual steps that you had to do to get a distillery off the ground? Well, it was a lot easier 10 years ago than it is now because uh, there weren't very many distilleries and there was a lot less competition for the resources of the federal government and the local permitting entities. And so um, the first thing it took was applying to the TTB, which is the Tax and Trade Bureau, it used to be at that time the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, uh, which was quite a bureaucracy with a lot of folks involved. But we went through a lot of paperwork, filled out a lot of documents, and submitted the application. And then I needed to find a, a place. I found an 800 square foot old brothel in Silverton, Colorado, up at 9,300 feet um, that I could afford to rent with the you know money I had in my pocket. Um, I didn't have big investors at that time uh, in the company. So it was really a shoestring boot, you know, bootstrapping operation. And um, then picking out, deciding what stills to use, which um, I decided on Alembic copper pot stills from Portugal. Uh, they really are a throwback to a very old tradition of, of distilling. Um, and then getting local permits and state permits all together now in, in 2018, I have 17 permits to operate, which is a lot to maintain and keep timely, as you can imagine. Um, but back then, everything happened a lot quicker. We had to get our labels approved and our formulas approved by the federal government. And once we did, uh, it was quick from there to beginning to operate stills and produce rum. And were you just teaching yourself all of this as you were going along or were you talking to other distillers to figure out how they got started? Or I, I'm just like so impressed that you kind of figured out how to do all of this in six months. Well, my colleagues would probably, you know, be apoplectic to hear me say it out loud, but, um, it's really not rocket science, especially when you're using that really old school tradition of distilling. So if you had, say, you know, um, thousand gallon stills and thousand gallon fermentation tanks, the risks are very high. You could lose a whole fermentation and that would be, you know, $20,000 of investment potentially down the, down the drain. For me, my stills are only 100 gallons each and my fermentations are only 100 gallons. So my risk is low with each batch. And, um, and I did, I reached out to a number of different expert distillers at the time. Um, the folks at Peach Street up in Palisade, Colorado, um, the head distiller at Stranahan's, um, they were all amazingly supportive and answered 
so many questions and let me come and sit in their distilleries and check things out. And um, so I had great mentors, but I also um, had a lot of research to do. And at that time, the American Distilling Institute had incredible videos online that you could watch through. It was like, you know, going to night school or something. Um, I would just watch through videos about how to ferment and how to make things. And um, these were professionally taught uh, from their conferences and events that they had sponsored. So I was able to really uh, gain a lot of information just using the internet which wouldn't have been possible, you know, 10 or 15 years before. Yeah. And so you, you get to this point where you've got your permits, you have an old brothel in Silverton, Colorado, you've got your stills. How do you find your first customers? So one of the cool things was that the distillery was right at the top of the Durango and Silverton narrow gauge train line. So every day, for about six months of the year, um, the train would disgorge about you know, 2000 people onto the street who were interested in looking around and checking everything out. And we were such an anomaly back then. I mean, it was, it was almost humorous. Um, we were a rum distillery, first of all, uh, which we were in the mountains and not in the islands. That was an anomaly. Um, it was 2008, nine, 10, when, you know, it was an economic downturn. People were stressed uh, financially, I think. And and so any escapism was really attractive. And then we had these beautiful alembic copper pots uh, and this gorgeous tasting room that was like being kind of in the hold of a pirate ship. Mm. Um, and people just loved it. And um, so that was, that was kind of the early way in which we reached our, our customers um, was just people walking in the door, word of mouth. Um, but from a very early point, I walked into the, the office of the Public National Distributing Company, which is a you know, huge distributing company in 14 U.S. states and, you know, billions and billions of dollars of alcoholic beverages moving around. And I don't know who I thought I was, but I got an appointment with the president of uh, RNBC <laughs> Colorado and walked into his office, you know, one of those floor to ceiling doors in the corner office. And I put my, you know, little craft rum from the mountains of Colorado on the, on his desk. And he called in some of his colleagues and we, um, <laughs> we tasted through the portfolio and I think they were just starting to get an inkling about craft spirits. And they said, sure, we'll carry your product. And, that gave me uh, the backing of a huge distribution company with trucks driving all over Colorado. And I would go in and present to their, you know, 120 sales reps all about the product. And they got behind us really early in our company history and have been one of our key allies to growing the brand ever since. Wow. Um, so as you think back on this like, very, very early days of just actually setting up the company in kind of 2008, 2009, is there anything that you would have done differently in actually setting the company up? <laughs> oh, my gosh, that list could go on for seven hours. <laughs> um, it, there were so many things that I learned through trial by fire. Um, the first one was that when I started a distillery, I had no idea that there was this thing called the three-tiered system. Um, and, you know, I made a joke recently that it's a bit like saying, I'm going to start, I'm going to start Amazon. 
um, oh, there's such a thing as the internet. Like, you know, it, <laughs> it's such an integral part of how spirits and beer and wine move around the country and into stores and restaurants and bars. I had no idea it existed. Uh, and so what I didn't realize when I started the company was that I was rarely ever going to sell directly to my customer. I could do it out of my tasting room and I could do it in the state of Colorado if I had a, a self-distribution license. But otherwise, as soon as I stepped foot outside that tiny little network that I could be part of directly, I was going to have to rely on this really complicated, really entrenched, really old school distribution model um, that didn't know anything at that time about craft spirits. And um, I was educated really quickly about how complicated it was and how they wanted me to act like Bacardi or Captain Morgan and I couldn't um, and how they just wanted me to pump and pour money into their coffers to be able to do my work for me. And I didn't have that money. Um, so it was a real education. That was just kind of one of those things. Um, sometimes in the early days, people would just look at me like, you don't have a clue what you're doing, do you? And <laughs> of course they were absolutely right. <laughs> I didn't. Um, but in, in a weird way that benefited me because it made us look at, and feel and seem so rare and so, um, authentic and, and transparent and different from, from the very beginning. Um, so I'm curious about, you said, you know, at the beginning, this was really just kind of bootstrapping it. Um, I'm curious how you funded this kind of from the beginning and then what fundraising you've done as you built the company and building on that, just kind of what advice you have for people in terms of fundraising for their companies. Well, as you can imagine, it was a challenge right from the start on fundraising because, um, First of all, I'm a woman um, and women just generally have a much harder time raising private equity and capital. Um, I think they, they receive about 20% of the allocations of those, of those funds. And so, um, and this was 10 years ago, the statistics were even worse then. And so that was a first challenge. The second challenge was that I was a woman owner of a distillery, which was even more rare. At the time that I was getting started, I didn't know of any others. Um, I knew of some other women in the industry, like Lorena Vasquez from Guatemala, who was making blending uh, Ron's a copper rum, but I didn't know of any women distillery owners in the US. Um, and so I was really fighting this crazy uphill battle. Um, the good news was that my brother-in-law um, was a, a fund manager with a big company in the Bay Area. And he, from the very beginning, saw the magic of, of what we were doing and got excited about it. And so he became my first investor um, about five years, six years ago. And unfortunately, he passed away from prostate cancer in January of this year, um, which really kind of kicked my legs out from under me because he was one of my greatest business mentors and one of you know the biggest investors in the company and I had to really reorganize my um, my my mentorship network and my my ideas about how to raise money to grow which we are doing at a high enough rate um, and you just can't cash flow that kind of growth when you're aging spirits um, for between you know 18 months and four years um, I have to be way ahead of the curve. Um, and it takes a lot of money and capital. So, um, so that was a big challenge. But that said, um, I have over the last five years, I've gotten really 
good at just asking, at just constantly being out there. I think one of the things that influenced me the most was someone saying, you know, it takes about a hundred requests before you get a yes. <laughs> and as distressing as that was to me at the time that I heard it, it also makes me feel like I'm not failing when someone says no, which happens all the time. Um, and then when someone says yes, and I haven't asked a hundred times, I feel like I, you know, I really outdid the statistics. Um, so it's been a process of um, just constantly looking around me. There's a, there's a tenet in the world of investment, which is that you can usually see your investors from your roof. Uh, and so I've looked really close to my distillery. Crested Butte is an incredibly vibrant economic world with a lot of people who come in from other urban areas to ski and to enjoy the mountain biking and the wildflowers. So I have been sort of unrelenting in putting the opportunity in front of them and seeing if they're interested. And um, I just keep keep asking the question. I don't always get a yes, but every now and then I get a yes and it creates a great team behind me. So, so I just heard um, kind of Crested Butte in here. And so there seems that at some point there was a move from Silverton to Crested Butte. And I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the growth of the company over the last 10 years. What sort of traction have you guys achieved? And also just what do you think has been one of some of the key elements of your growth? Um, so we made the move from Silverton to Crested Butte in about 2011. Um, it was motivated by a number of different things, but primarily by the growth of, of both of our companies. So my husband had a company at the time called Mountain Boy Sledworks that was also growing. And we began to really look at how to grow strategically for both companies and found that the resources and the compliance environment and everything that we needed and was just not in Silverton. Plus, we had two kids that were in sixth and eighth grade right around then, and they were really ready for a bigger community. So we, we made the, the bold move from a community of 500 year-round residents to a community of 2,500 year-round <laughs> residents, um, which gave our kids, you know, some, we have two sons and it gave them some girls that they hadn't known since they were one, which they were happy about and gave us um, access to this incredibly vibrant business community that is Crested Butte. There's a light industrial park two miles outside of town that has, you know, at that time, again, it was the economic downturn. So, there was a lot of commercial space available and empty and affordable. And we, we were able to get beautiful retail space and, and uh, distilling space right in the core of downtown, which allowed us incredible access to our customers and to people from all over the world walking up and down the streets. Um, so we went from 800 square feet to 5,800 square feet in a couple of jumps. Um, and that has really helped us to handle much of the, um, much of the demand that has come our way. We just shipped last week, we shipped six barrels of rum to Valencia, Spain, that will be bottled in Spain for the EU market in 700 milliliter bottles. You know, part of our massive sustainability campaign as a company is not shipping things all over the place that don't need to be moving uh, multiple times. So we most of the glass for the European market is made in Europe. So we're shipping the bulk rum and having it bottled in Spain. And so it's allowed us to make enough rum and to store enough rum 
uh, in these b bigger warehouse spaces that are here than we had in, in Silverton. Wow. And, and just looking at that growth, um, what do you think is behind it? Is it the, the actual quality of the product? Is it the authenticity of the brand or combination of all of those things? Like how, how have you actually grown the company? I would say that we are experiencing three or four different waves simultaneously that I'm working really hard to kind of surf. Um, so the first wave is, is the craft cocktail wave. Um, so that started about 10, you know, nine, 10 years ago and really uh, has taken hold to the point where almost every decent bar and restaurant out in the world has a, has a, cocktail list of beautiful cocktails that they've curated themselves. Um, that was not true when we started. And it's just been so exciting to be a part of that, that movement. The second wave is that rum is just on fire right now. Um, that wasn't true even five years ago. People were still shaking their heads like nobody drinks rum. People don't drink rum. I would love to think that I've been part um, through my you know somewhat relentless um, just visibility and presence out in the cocktail world. I'd like to think I've been part of helping people to see that rum is just as legitimate and wonderful in cocktails as any other spirit and that the cocktails do not need to be sweet and syrupy and they don't need to have umbrellas in them or, you know, coconut uh, cream or whatever. Um, so that's that's been another wave that we've really been able to either latch onto or, or be part of generating. And then the, the third wave is really the craft spirits boom, um, which also has come about in the last 10 years. You know, we were probably about the fifth uh, craft distillery to really come online in Colorado. And there are now 70, 75 Whoa. craft distilleries in the state. Um, so we get, we get, even though we're only 10 years old, we get, you know, OG status in Colorado, which, <laughs> is is great um for us because you know a lot of it is just about survival um the longer you stay in it the longer people believe that you're real and the longer people believe that you're real the more likely they are to recommend you to their friends and to put you on their back bar and to really invest in you put you on the menu um so we've we've caught all three of those waves at once um and then there's obviously there's, you know, the, the buy local, buy from people, you know, sustainability, environmental responsibility, um, B Corp, kind of those, those trends that have really um, supported us in the ethos that we already had, where people are seeking out companies that are stewarding um, the environment and everything better than um than other other companies that are having you know in the rum world it's like if your sugarcane workers are dying at 24 percent higher rates than than other agricultural farmers then there's something really wrong and that's been a big story in rum is you know how what are the conditions of sugarcane harvesters and we're working with family farmers in the u.s um and they just don't have those those complications so you've kind of, you know, you've taken these four factors and over 10 years built this incredible company, but I'm curious, what are you actually struggling most with right now? I would say that I, uh, I struggle most on a regular basis with people not totally understanding the economics of, of craft distilling. So you would think at 10 years in 
that I would be, um, you know, just kind of pumping revenue and huge profits and turning those profits back into inventory. And, um, and it's, it's interesting because, um, people don't necessarily recognize that you spend a lot of money to grow a brand over 10 years. So, um, I, you know, if I go out and make speeches in New York, like I did last week or in San Francisco, like a month ago, um, I am really, um, you know, I'm, I'm investing a lot of money and the, you know, the seven or eight bucks that I make on a bottle of rum is just not going to cover that work. Um, the, all, every dollar that I make off of selling the rum has to go back into making a lot more rum so that I can be big enough in a year or two years or three years to handle two or three years of growth at, you know, 20 to 40%. And so it's this big churning, uh, mass of demand on cash flow. And I think, um, in, in the industry, investors understand that and they, they kind of pour money in until they gain the attention of a company like Proximo or Constellation or William Grant and Sons or Diageo that buys up these companies, even Bacardi, um, they buy up companies, um, for, you know, 20 million to $180 million. Um, and then all the returns go back to the investors and it's, it's awesome. And everybody makes, you know, 50 X their money. Um, it's, that's what it's like, but it's a long game. Um, and so you have to really end up working with traditional spirits industry investors for them to understand the long game. And when they do, then they tend to be, you know, middle-aged white people and they don't understand my small craft rum company or me as an owner. And so it's this, it's this big challenge of um, trying to make enough rum and have enough money to do. We have 27 employees and a really vibrant, uh, profitable bar and restaurant. Um, so there's a lot to manage. Um, but I, I really, someday I just, I would love to talk to someone who's like, Oh, I get it <laughs> for me not to have to explain it all. It, it'll happen. <laughs> um, so one thing that you actually brought up a little bit earlier that I wanted to ask about. So you mentioned that both you and your husband are entrepreneurs, um, uh, you know, and, and at one point you both had your own companies and I, and you had two kids. Um, how have you just stayed centered and grounded? And I mean, I know personally, I am the entrepreneur in my partnership and my husband has had a very steady, stable job. And I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to also have him be a fellow business owner. So just how have you kind of stayed grounded and centered uh, within your family? It's such a good question um, because it really has taken um, quite a long time for us to kind of hit our stride that way. I do feel like we have hit our stride and it's, it's really fun to be on this side of things. But back in the early days, um, so back, you know, in the, when our children were, were babies, um, I, we did a lot of, uh, supplementation, I would call it. Um, so I took a corporate job with a fortune 500 company doing brand building and graphic design, um, for, you know, the same company that owns Bear Paints and Newport Brass and Delta Fawcett and Liberty Hardware and all these companies. And I, I was working for them. Um, 
and that was really primarily for the paycheck. It was somewhat soul crushing work, but it was uh, for the paycheck and for the, to pay the nanny so that, you know, both Bryce and I could, could have some, some income um, because we both had our own companies at that time that weren't making us quite enough. Bryce had just started his mountain boy Sledworks company and it took two, three years for that one to kind of get to where it was bringing in some income. And so, um, yeah, I think between the two of us, we counted recently and we've started six businesses over the, over the course of our careers. Um, but we've also sold some businesses and fledged some businesses, um, that, you know, put money back in the system to, to support the next plan. Um, it's fun to be fellow entrepreneurs because we get to really feed off of each other. And Bryce has a ton of skills that I don't have. And I have a ton of skills that Bryce doesn't have. So we can often fill each other's gaps for each other's companies. Um, you know, and, and we, we don't really place the biggest value in our lives on money. If we did, we probably wouldn't live in Crested Butte. If we did, we probably would be, you know, in the tech world or something like that. Um, we place mo much more value on sort of being community minded and being part of a local phenomenon and taking care of our employees and, and having a triple bottom line and, and working toward, and, you know, a lot of local philanthropy, things like that, that um, don't always get measured the same way when, you know, Forbes comes knocking to do a, an article, they want to know, bottom line revenue and they, you know, they want to know things like that. And we invest in a lot of bigger picture priorities, uh, as entrepreneurs, but you know, we've got two kids in college now and we're, we're paying the bills and, um, we live in a, you know, as, for both of us, we laugh and say, as long as we have a vehicle and a place to lay our heads at night and the ability to sort of, you know, get our kids through college, I think we're both quite satisfied. So we don't need much in other words. Um, another thing that you you mentioned previously that I wanted to return back to as well was, you know, you said, at least in 2008, you were, as far as you could tell, the only female distiller in the United States. Um, I'm sure that that might have changed a little bit, but probably not much. Um, and I'm just curious for you, what has your experience been being one of the only women in this industry? Well, the the good news is that it is changing. Um, I, in about April of 2018, I founded a nonprofit organization called the Women's Distillery Guild. And um, I just was in New York last week with six of my board members um, who are either distillery owners, head distillers, master distillers. Um, we, we were from Colorado and Portland, Oregon and Michigan and Providence, Rhode Island, um, all over the place. And it was just literally like one of the coolest things I've been able to be part of in a long time. Um, the, the master distiller from East side distilling in Portland, Oregon started about the same time as I did. And it took us a while to find each other, but once we did, we've been really connected and, and good, uh, friends and a lot of support to each other. And we're both really committed to mentoring and bringing up and, and helping to support other women who are working on being part of the industry. Um, and so we had an event in uh, Portland, Oregon, actually, in collaboration with the American Distilling Institute in April. 
there were 60 women who are meaningfully part of the distilling industry at that gathering. And for some of them, they were so moved because they've just felt like they were in a silo of loneliness as a woman in the industry and they just didn't know. And, and it was a, it was an incredible networking opportunity. So we have come a long way, not because we just waited for it to happen, but because we made it happen. I think by, by being committed to fostering gender diversity. Um, but also, you know, um, being kind of alone in those early days, um, I think it made me even more feisty and more just like, ah, oh, I am not going to let them crush me. I'm not going to let them kill me or put me out of business, or I'm not going to meet their expectations, you know, the sidelong glances, like, who, let's see how long she lasts or, you know, <laughs> she's never going to make it or this, this rum from 9,000 feet in the mountains of Colorado. That's funny. Um, I just, I'm competitive that way. I don't like to, to have anybody's, uh, you know, ideas of that I might not succeed be borne out. So I think that probably helped in a weird way. It just pushed me to, to work harder and fight longer and not give up. So one thing I'm curious about for you kind of on the day to day now is if you have any practices in terms of just taking care of yourself, uh, personal wellness and your own sustainability. Oh gosh. Yes. I have worked really hard on that. Um, so one of the things that, you know, 10 years ago when I started, I had a, had a gym habit, like a lot of people do where, you know, I'd go to the gym for three, four days a week and work out with weights. And, you know, kind of that was one of the ways other than hiking and skiing that I would stay in shape. Um, and quickly in having a craft distillery, you know, getting invited to travel or to be part of events um, or to go to Tales of the Cocktail, which is the largest cocktail event in the world that's every year in New Orleans. And I, I recognized that I was on the road about half the time and that I didn't have access to my usual routine. Um, and as a celiac, you know, I have to be extremely careful about food and eating in restaurants. And um, so over the last five years or so, I've really cultivated um, some habits for the road that work really well for me. So I I um, log in every morning to Gaia, which is a, you know, an online website. And I have about a thousand different yoga classes or meditation rituals um, that I can do with high level yoga instructors or, or Buddhist, you know, lamas or whatever. So I've, I've really gotten into a practice of an hour to an hour and 15 minutes of yoga and meditation in the mornings before I start my day. Um, I make a lot of food on the road. Uh, so I, instead of staying in a, in a traditional hotel, I often stay in either a suite hotel with a kitchen or I stay in a, you know, in an apartment through VRBO or Airbnb or something and cook a lot of food. And then, you know, have my one cocktail supported meal out at a, you know, at an account that I'm visiting or with a bartender that I'm, that I'm talking with. Um, it's made me exponentially more healthy and more able to sustain the, the pretty grueling pace of travel. Last week I did nine events in four days in New York city. Um, and five years ago, I don't think I would have felt nearly as good at the end of that as I did this time. 
um, because of those practices. So helpful. Um, so kind of in reflecting on the last 10 years of, of running this company, I'm curious if you have two to three of your top pieces of advice that you have for other business leaders. Um, that's a, you know, there's so many levels to that question because there's like the, you know, the, the financing level, and then there's the, um, again, self-care level and there's the employees and, and taking care of your work environment. Um, but funny enough, I would say that, that my current obsession, the thing I am most deeply moved by these days in business specifically, not necessarily in my personal life, although there too, um, is plastic. And it's a bit of a soapbox for me, I will admit. Um, but I am so horrified and, and devastated in my work world when I travel for events you know, the number of plastic cups and plastic plates and plastic silverware, you know, uh, cutlery that, that gets used once and thrown away and doesn't get recycled because people aren't committed to recycling. And um, I, and then walking through New York City last week and just being horrified by the trash everywhere and then going to San Francisco and, you know, sort of same, same story. There are these cities that really pride themselves on being conscious and forward thinking and, and progressive and, and having, you know, recycling and compost and whatever, but what's happening on a daily basis and what's in trash cans around the country on a daily basis is, is really unsustainable. And it's not something I'm willing to bequeath to my, my sons for their future to have to clean up and deal with. Um, so I, I think my best advice is, you know, create a company that does not rely on plastic um, or on single-use throwaway things, whatever it happens to be. Um, and Montagna has done that, and it's been really satisfying for me to 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 know that we are on such a good path toward being zero waste. We're not zero waste, and I don't pretend to be. That's an incredibly hard bar to hit every day, um, but we are on a very clear path toward really minimizing our solid waste as a company and not trusting the recycling mechanisms and really trying to make sure we don't even put anything into those bins if we possibly can. Hmm. And the juxtaposition of New York City versus Crested Butte is a stark one. <laughs> um, and for for listeners who've never had the opportunity to go to Crested Butte, Colorado, I, I dare say it's probably one of the most beautiful places on planet earth uh, and just pristine and so small and quaint and it's it's just fabulous um so thank you uh, yeah and it really i'm sure that's part of why my eye is so so sensitized to it because i come from here and it's a very uh i mean it's not perfect here either but it's a very sustainably minded community um, and I go to these bigger urban areas. I go to the Dallas airport or the Houston airport. They don't even recycle in the airport anything anywhere with all those plastic water bottles and, you know, Coke cans. And it just, it really literally like makes my head explode. But I'm sure I see it in part because of spending most of my time in Crested Butte and um, seeing less of it. And then I go, I go out of here and I'm like, do you people, do you even know what's <laughs> happening? Can you see this? You know, cause you don't like when it's your every day, you, you block out 80% of what you see just because that's how you cope with life. And, and I think they really don't see it and they don't own it. Um, so 
maybe someday people will start to see single use coffee cups and plastic water bottles as litter instead of as a convenience item that helps them get through their day. And, and once we make that shift, like we did back in the seventies with litter, when people used to hurl it out the window of their car and it would float around on the rivers and in parks. And uh, they, you know, there was a very successful campaign to, to demonize litter that has worked incredibly well uh, over the years in the U S like that's my mission is to demonize single use throwaway convenience trash. Hmm. Amen. Uh, <laughs> so one thing that I'm curious about for you, um, what is the most important thing in your life right now? Um, trying really hard to not be sad about having an empty nest. That is my mission of the, of this month. I just dropped my youngest off at college. Um, he, it would probably be easier if he'd been like a partier who, you know, was breaking curfew and, and bringing rowdy, poorly behaved teenagers to the house all the time or something. But that was not at all my experience. He's a, he was an interesting kid. He had these interesting, wonderful teenage friends and, you know, he's a great cook and he, um, helps me to find what book I'm going to read next. And, uh, he was just a great roommate. Um, and he's, I guess I'm about a month out from him not being in the house anymore. And, you know, I just, I just missed, I miss both my kids so much um, because they're really awesome human beings. And um, luckily I have a husband that I love and a job that I love. I cannot imagine how hard it would be without those two things. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't want to be that person who sort of wallows in my sadness about not having my children in my house. I'm going to, I'm going to thrive and I'm going to travel. I leave on Sunday to go do some Via Ferrata climbing in the Dolomites. So I'm, I'm embracing my freedom and that I'm not governed by the school calendar for the first time in 20 years, but man, I miss my kids. Oh, I bet. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing. Oh, um, all right. And our final question, um, what is giving you hope for the future? I would say that, um, oh gosh, sadly, when you asked me that question, I just had like, like, it was like a little slideshow went by my, my head of all the things that have been really making me lose hope for the future. I don't know why that happened. It was like a freight train went by and I saw politics and I saw, you know, um, environment and I saw plastic in the ocean and I saw, you know, um, global climate change and flooding and oh it just like kind of overtook me there for a second so i'm going i'm i have to take a little breath and refocus and um and and i think what i would say is that so occasionally i end up in the coffee shop with these um folks who are working in the tech world but they're really free to move around and travel and work from wherever they want and um, I'm now part of a co-working environment in Crested Butte that is kind of on that same page of like, you know, interesting entrepreneurs doing really interesting teleworking. Um, and I get to hear about some technology like window glass that is solar panels um, that we may eventually all generate all of our household electricity off of the windows that we install in our house or um, solar panels that get installed on roads um, or, you know, companies that are making um, 
bricks out of old plastic and building homes after hurricanes in places like Haiti and Mexico. And um, so I really believe that we are such a brilliant species and we have this incredible ability to make um, technology work for us. And I, and I really hope that we are going to continue to shift paradigms of what things are made of, how we generate electricity, how we use the resources of our planet. Um, we, we're going to change that regardless of politics, regardless of whether there's a sea change in the White House or anywhere else um, toward it. I think, you know, electric cars and hybrids and um, those types of things are going to become more prevalent and we're going to stop just putting so much demand on the resources of the planet is my hope. Um, so that, that I am hopeful for. Mm, me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um, for anyone who has the opportunity to make it to Crested Butte, Colorado, please, please, please come, go visit Montana Rum uh, with the wonderful Karen, who was so gracious to give us your time and wisdom and insights today. I am so excited about your company and everything you're doing in the world and just wanted to thank you for all you do on a daily basis. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope to see um, you and listeners coming to visit soon. A huge thanks this week goes out to Karen Hoskin and the whole team over at Montana Distillers, as well as our incredible production team at StoryPop Media and the whole Conscious Company Media team. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A Story Pop Media Production.